Thanks for coming up and doing that. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Luke this evening, Sunday night, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. We remember that Jesus, as we saw last week, He was uh, betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, uh, and as He's taken then to the house of the high priest and uh, uh, to be tried there, that uh, uh, Peter then denies Him the three times. And on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, um, there are a, a series of three trials that occur in His life before He ever ends up um, crucified on the cross at Calvary. Two of them were religious uh, trials, and uh, one of them, the first one would be before uh, 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 Annas the high priest, who's a very, very wealthy uh, Sadducee. He'd made a fortune selling animals and exchanging money in the temple. It is uh, at that trial before Annas that we find described there in verse 54, having arrested him there in the Garden of Gethsemane, they uh, led him and brought him to the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. And so the events that we read about here in 63 are events related to that, uh, that trial. Uh, later on after this trial, as they find no fault in Jesus, uh, Jesus is sent to Caiaphas, uh, the son-in-law of, uh, of Annas, and uh, to the Sanhedrin in order to be uh, tried. And so, verse 63, now the men who held Jesus, and it appears that Jesus had been, a trial had occurred in one building, Peter is warming himself and uh, following Jesus at a distance in a courtyard of some kind. So some kind of a cluster of buildings with a main central courtyard that made up the, the home of the high priest. After his third denial of Jesus, uh, Peter looked up just as Jesus was being taken across the courtyard, their eyes locked, and Peter then remembered the prophecy that had been given, and he wept bitter tears. So apparently he leaves that place now to head into the place where this punishment is going to be meted out upon him. And the men who held Jesus mocked him, and they beat him. These were religious men. Uh, the the uh, temple area had their own uh, temple security. They had their uh, own uh, temple uh, military, so to speak. The Romans didn't want to go up on the Temple Mount. It always created a problem uh, when they did, and so they let the Jews take care of it. And so these were Jewish men <clears throat> who had that responsibility. Jesus had obviously been sent uh, to them with the orders that he would be beaten in this way, so they proceeded to mock him and to beat him. And a beating wasn't enough for them, the sadists that they were. They then blindfolded him, and then they struck him on the face, and they asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is this who struck you? And so, if you've ever seen maybe a video on YouTube or a video on the news where um, so many of these people are just getting blindsided in our 
major cities in the United States and somebody just comes out of the blue, it can be a man or it can be a woman, most often an older person, and somebody just decks them and they never see the punch coming and they just go down like a sack of potatoes and they're out because they couldn't make any allowance for the coming punch. It just hits them full brunt and unexpected. And that's what they did to Jesus. They put the bag over his face so that he wouldn't know where it, uh, the punches were coming. And you say, why in the world would he do that? Well, I don't know all of the reasons, but certainly uh, the cruelty on their part, their um, hatred that had filtered down to them from the Jewish religious leaders against Jesus. And they mete out this punishment with, with, uh, with glee and then with the, the mocking of calling on him to prophesy who it is is the one that struck you. And if you're the Messiah, if you're a great prophet, then name the name of the person that just uh, punched you. It's a horrible, horrible, ugly scene. And if you've ever seen somebody, um, I remember seeing it a number of times in high school where somebody is in a fight and it doesn't get stopped early enough and they are just pummeled and it uh, makes you sick to your stomach as you watch it. And here is the, the Savior of the world, God the Son, enduring uh, all of this. And many other things that uh, they uh, blasphemy spoke, blasphemously spoke against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, they came together and they led Jesus into their council. And the council referred to here is the Jewish Sanhedrin. And uh, those that are present, excuse me, those that are present, were present there, are listed for us there. There were the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the members of the Sanhedrin, their council. And the Sanhedrin was a religious body of the 71 most powerful religious Jews in all of Judaism and certainly within the nation of uh, uh, land of Israel. And so the trial, as the Sanhedrin is made up, uh, not only of all these people that have come, but made up of scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees, other men of religious distinction and, and authority and power uh, in, in Israel. A trial before the Sanhedrin was always overseen by the high priest, and uh, it doesn't appear that everyone that constituted the official Sanhedrin, all 71 of them, were called out for this trial. Uh, it, it appears that on, uh, the ones that did come were carefully selected for uh, the purpose of, of uh, condemning Jesus. According to the oral traditions, uh, of the Jews based upon the law of Moses and rules and laws for handling a court proceeding that would ultimately find its way in what is known as the Jewish Mishnah. Uh, they were very, very specific rules that were to be kept concerning uh, any kind of a trial that was brought before the Sanhedrin. All criminal cases were to be tried only during the daytime. They were not to be conducted uh, at night. It is daybreak, the time that Jesus is being uh, tried in this way. All trials uh, had to be uh, completed uh, during the day. 
criminal cases could not be tried during any of the great feasts, including the uh, Jewish feast of Passover when Jesus is being tried here. Only in a case where the verdict was not guilty could a case be finished on the day that the trial had begun. There could never be a conviction of guilt made in a single day. If a verdict was a verdict of death, a night always had to elapse before that death was carried out in order that the court might have a chance to sleep on the decision that they had made in case they wanted to then extend mercy even to a guilty person before the, the, the court. No decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it met in its own meeting place, the hall of hewn stone in the temple precincts. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. All witnesses were to be examined separately. They were never to have contact with one another, and any false witness or perjury was punishable by death, much less what they did, and that is to arrange false testimony against Jesus. And any trial was to begin with the presentation of all the evidence for the innocence of the accused. The evidence of guilt was only to be presented after the case for innocence. And each and individual member of the Sanhedrin was to give their verdict separately, beginning from the youngest to the oldest uh, in the group. And the Jewish Sanhedrin in the trial related to Jesus violated every single one of those laws. And that's how eager they were to end the threat that Jesus was to their religious system and the power and, and the uh, operation that had become, the money-making operation that it, it had uh, become. And uh, the trial of Jesus by these religious leaders, a complete mockery of justice. It wasn't any attempt here to ascertain the facts concerning his life. It was an endeavor just to try and find some reason for accusing him of something uh, worthy of, uh, of death. And, and so here it proceeds. They came together and they said to Jesus, if you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, then tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. You won't believe that. This is not about truth. This is not about uh, coming to the truth concerning me. If I tell you the truth about myself, you won't believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. I have no means here of, of defending myself. But then he gave them uh, an answer his way. He said, hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. I'm so sorry for this, but what can you do? Life. And... and what Jesus does is he declares himself to be the Son of Man, and what he does here in answering their question is that he quotes from that great messianic psalm, Psalm 110, uh, that declared that Messiah would be the Son of Man and that he would uh, ultimately sit at the right hand uh, of the Father on high. 
So it's almost like Jesus is saying, you see me presently in my current condition. And, and by this point, uh, badly beaten. He will be beaten again before he ever gets to the cross. But he's telling them, make no mistake about it, that when you see me again, you will see me sitting on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. He was also declaring to them his resurrection, that uh, in crucifying him, their problems were only beginning, and that this trial that they had initiated related to him would be a trial that would continue all the way into the glory of heaven when they would one day stand uh, before him who was to judge uh, all of the earth. And so he, he gives them his answer that he is the Messiah, more than that, that he is uh, uh, the Son of God. And they all said, are you then the Son of God? They ask him plainly. They understand what it is that he, he's saying here, uh, uh, ascribing deity to himself. And, everyone in, and this is the charge that they want to get in order to accuse him of something being worthy of death. And everyone knows that if Jesus says that he is, that, uh, that they're going to accuse him of blasphemy. And so he said to them, you rightly say that I am. He declared himself to be the Son of God and to be Messiah. Sometimes it's, it's an odd thing where every once in a while I'll be listening to something or whatever it might be, and you'll, uh, in, in, uh, in maybe some... Uh, non-Christian cult will say that Jesus never declared himself to be God. He never ascribed deity to himself in the Bible. But here you see it. You see it all over the place. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Um, before Abraham was, I am, and, and so forth. He ascribes all of this to himself, and they understood it. And they said, uh, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. They considered a blasphemy that was uh, worthy of death. And so they, they hear it, they've got their charge, but they still have a problem because the Jews being a part of the Roman Empire uh, had no right to capital punishment. They could not kill Jesus on their, on their own, with their own authority. And so now they realize we've gotten this far, but we've got to involve the Romans in this in order to get this accomplished. And so uh, this is what they uh, then begin to do. And uh, the whole multitude of them arose and they led Jesus to Pilate. So this group of however many that there was, uh, they don't send Jesus with a handful of people. The whole group goes uh, because they uh, obviously in an attempt to successful attempt to intimidate Pilate to taking a case that has no merit at all and, uh, and then also to kind of uh, uh, give the appearance of legitimacy of their false claims uh, against him. So they led uh, him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is a, a Christ, a king. So here you have a, a fabrication. These guys are wordsmiths. Jesus never said not to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, he said just the opposite. 
Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render unto God that which belongs to God. And yes, he did declare himself to be a king, but a, a king of a kingdom that uh, is not of this world. And never did he uh, work to uh, uh, promulgate uh, a revolution among the Jews against uh, Roman rule in the land of Israel. So all of this is, is uh, false uh, that's the, the accusation and Pilate then the accusations have been made Pilate is the judge here now it's been brought before him as the Roman uh, governor of uh, that part of Israel as a part of the Roman Empire and he asked Jesus saying are you the king of the Jews so Jesus uh, Pilate distills the accusation of the Jewish religious leaders to be uh, their concern uh, and their charge to be his claim to be the king of the Jews. And so that's the question that, that he proceeds to ask. The, the word you there in the original language is emphatic, and the idea is, are you the king uh, of the Jews? And uh, almost as Jesus sits there in what has to be a pretty rumpled condition even by this point, uh, early in the morning, he hardly looked at anyone that would claim to be the king of, of anyone. And so he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Is this accusation accurate? And Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. He affirmed the fact that he was. And so Pilate uh, hears the accusation. He gets the answer from Jesus. And so Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. He confesses him to be innocent. And so, what should he have done? Should have slammed the door right there. Court is dismissed. This is a fraudulent charge. You're trying to involve Rome in something that has no weight at all, and then sent them on their way. And because he doesn't slam the door, immediately in what is clearly an attempt to manipulate him into a situation, the situation is just going to get worse and worse and worse. I remember many, many years ago, and I would recommend that all of you would listen to it. I'm sure you can find it online. Uh, but Gail Irwin taught a study called Dealing with Manipulators. And I think you can find it on Servant Quarters, which is his website. But it is so excellent on how to deal with manipulation. And manipulation is essentially an attempt to remove your freedom to say no. However the pressure is brought, whether it's a physical pressure or verbal pressure, but it's the pressure to remove your ability to choose for yourself on the basis of whatever it is that uh, it, it, you're trying to be manipulated, uh, related to. And Gail made so, a comment related to that that has helped me so much through the years as a pastor. I'm not around manipulators all the time, but there are people that always want to kind of attach to things and their agenda, and you get the feeling, this person is trying to manipulate me, and uh, even as a Christian or as a pastor pastor, but other areas of life as well. And he said, the moment you sense uh, that what's being done here is a manipulation, 
than to immediately respond by saying, I sense you are removing my freedom to choose, and for that reason, I tell you no. And it, and it, it will serve us so very, very uh, well because it puts the blame for the no back on them for the manipulative uh, move that is going here. If Pilate had just slammed the door, uh, he would be a hero in human history for having dealt with the situation rightly. And he wouldn't have been harassed by the Jewish religious leaders in any devastating kind of way as a result of it. They're grasping at straws. I don't even know that they believed that they could get Pilate to do this. And if he slammed the door in their face, so to speak, they would have said, well, we never thought he would go along with it, but it was worth a try. But he keeps the thing alive. He keeps their hope alive. And pretty soon it's going to become a mob and, uh, uh, and uh, all emotion as we, as we see here. And so he tells them, I find no fault in this man. And, and here's what uh, they, did. they said. Uh, they were the more fierce. So now emotion takes over the situation. And he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And it's another false accusation. But now you have uh, emotion taking the lead over facts. And their facts were pretty scant to begin with. So here you have uh, wokeism in our culture and how powerful and how manipulative and how intimidating it is. And the only way you defeat it is to stand up to it, is to stand up to it and see what happens. To go along and that, uh, on, on any kind of manipulation is to they'll never be satisfied. These Jewish religious leaders would never be satisfied until Jesus was on a cross. And Pilate made the mistake that they could be satisfied with less. So they mentioned that he's been stirring the people up, teaching throughout all Galilee that he began, uh, all Judea, he began from the Galilee to this place. And Pilate now sees him out. He's a savvy a politician. And he thinks, as, the, as Galilee is mentioned, it would be an alarming thing to him. The Jewish religious knew it would be. Almost all of the revolts against Roman rule historically came from the north. It came from the Galilee. These were where the freedom fighters, so to speak, would, would begin their revolutions against uh, Rome. But he hears about the Galilee and that Jesus has been doing this in the Galilee and Galilee is not his jurisdiction. Galilee is Herod's ju jurisdiction. The same Herod that put John the Baptist to death because John the Baptist confronted him that it was not right for him to have taken his brother's wife to be his own wife. And so Pilate, when he heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. He had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him 
and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. So in Herod's mind, Jesus is an uh, uh, hour's amusement. Let's see if he'll, he'll do a miracle uh, uh, for us here. And, and uh, that was the, the great expectation, uh, highest hope that he brings related to his contact with Jesus. And then he questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him uh, nothing. And, and here you have <clears throat> concerning Pilate. He is known biblically as the man that Jesus had nothing to say to. And I know we mentioned, as we saw Pilate or, uh, or Herod earlier uh, in the gospel. And, and I, I, there can be a couple of different reasons maybe for that, uh, I think one of the reasons that Jesus didn't speak anything to him, certainly because of what a, a uh, Herod was reducing Jesus to a dog and pony show in his palace to just do a trick for him. <clears throat> but I also think that because Herod had not taken seriously what John the Baptist had already said on behalf of God, to him that Jesus wasn't going to say <clears throat> wasn't going to say any more uh, to him. It's important to listen to the voice of God because if I don't listen to his voice, then he's not compelled to say anything more to me until I've taken what he's already said to me seriously. And that's why it's important in all of our lives to never uh, snuff out uh, a voice of God within our lives as Herod did with John the Baptist. Whether that's uh, a wife or a friend or a pastor or a mother or grandparents or a child or, and I don't want you to talk about God anymore to me. And to silence that voice because there's something worse than God speaking something to us that we don't like. And the something worse is if God goes completely silent on us, as we see is the case here. And as Jesus would not respond to the questions, the chief priests and the scribes stood and uh, vehemently accused him. So they had followed Jesus now and uh, as a part of the transport of him, then to Herod's palace in order for this, uh, this uh, trial to continue there. And the, uh, everything depends. This is their best hope for to put Jesus to death and be done with him. And uh, they're not going to miss every opportunity to, to try and accomplish that. And obviously their hope was that Herod would then declare him to be worthy of death and, and give the decree. And so they're in there making the same accusations. And then Herod with his men of war. They treated Jesus with contempt. They mocked him. They arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and uh, mocking his, the fact that he was the king of the Jews and then sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously uh, they had been at enmity with one another. And so what is the old saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And it's as old as, as this, uh, this story. 
uh, old as human history, but as old as this uh, story as well. And so Pilate then has this land back on his lap. He knows he has to go forward with it now at this point. And then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning these, those things of which you accuse him. So a second now, a call in, in declaration of Jesus' uh, innocent of the charges. He goes further and says, No, neither did Herod, for I sent him back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Uh, and, and so here again, he keeps that door open here when he, he ought to have slammed it. There is no better time to do the right thing than right now. And he delays doing the right thing. You ever delayed doing the right thing? Did it make it better? It does not make it better. I've tried. It only gets worse. And then you kick yourself and you say, I wish I'd have shut the door way back when. But he, he offers a, 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 suggests a solution to this to them. He said, what I'll do here is I'll, ch I'll chastise him. I'll, I'll hit him with a whip a few times, and then I'll, I'll release him. And the reason that he offered this as a solution is because it was necessary for him to release uh, one to them at the feast. And so it was an annual event um, uh, for the, uh, the uh, pilot there in uh, Judea that annually, in order to kind of build a bridge of goodwill between the Romans and the Jews, because that was always a very combustible relationship, is that the Jews would be able to ask for a criminal that was guilty before Rome to be released, and Rome would then uh, release that criminal. And so he is advocating, I, we will uh, chasten Jesus, and then we will make him the criminal that is released to you uh, as, a, as a part of this uh, tradition between Rome and the Jews. And, and Pilate at this point could very well be, be think, uh, not, it, might, it doesn't appear to have dawned on them yet that they want Jesus dead, that that's what he's in the middle of, uh, that they could be satisfied with this, but they're not going to keep him in the dark for very long related to that. And they all cried out at this suggestion at once saying, away with this man, they won't even say his name, and release to us uh, Barabbas. And Barabbas had been thrown into Roman prison for a certain rebellion that he had made in the city, some kind of a revolution, a rebellion against Rome in, in which he had committed murder. And Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them a third time, and uh, they shouted to him saying, crucify him, crucify him. Now it's just a full emotional frenzy. And when, then he said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will go, therefore, chasten him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. 
And Pilate's name, all of the decisions that Pilate made is a Roman governor. He is not remembered for one of them. Not one of them. The only decision that he is remembered for historically is what he did with Christ in this trial. And of course, what's true of Pilate is true of every single person in the world. We will all make how many decisions in the course of our lives? All of them will be forgotten. And it will all come down to just one decision that we made that will affect our eternities, and that is, what did we do with Christ? And so Pilate gave a sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, Barabbas, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Just awful. But the plan of God was an unfolding. And then as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. The other Gospels speak to us about the terrible beating and, and whipping and the crown of thorns and, and all uh, that took place by, uh, at Roman hands that was meted out upon uh, Jesus. Luke doesn't really go into it here, but uh, the beating was so severe, uh, the trauma upon his body was so severe that he's now unable to carry the cross outside of the city and then to Calvary, which is what the Romans did. They wanted their capital criminals to carry the cross to Calvary as an example to the population not to be a lawbreaker. But he's been so savaged that he does not have the strength uh, uh, to uh, even do that. And so they called upon Simon, who is a Cyrenian. That's a city from North Africa. He was pro and, and Cyrene had a, uh, a very large Jewish uh, colony population. He was probably coming to Jerusalem as a Jewish pilgrim, and he happens on this scene, and now he's going to carry uh, Jesus' cross uh, to, uh, to, uh, to Calvary. Uh, and, and, of course, the Roman soldiers, they could compel anyone to do anything for a mile by just putting their spear tip or sword tip on your shoulder, compel you to carry any burden for a mile. That's why Jesus said, if they compel you to go one mile, then go two. Retake control of the situation by doing the second, uh, second mile. And so they compel him uh, to do this. Beyond this, we don't know that much about uh, uh, Simon personally, but it does appear that uh, his two sons became uh, well-known Christians in the early church, and uh, making it very, very possible that Simon was very impacted by what he found himself in the middle of here, and that he became a Christian himself and influence the others. We can't be absolutely sure, but his sons are named as Christians in, uh, in, in the Bible. And so, as he's now making their way to Calvary, Jesus following here as the cross is being 
born here by uh, Simon, a great multitude of people followed him. Now, oftentimes I've heard people say concerning the crowds that were a part of Jesus' trials on the morning of his crucifixion that uh, the crowd that called for his crucifixion was the same crowd that declared, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on the Sunday prior to his crucifixion, and then to talk about the fickleness of crowds and all. Well, crowds can be very, very fickle, but I think they're two two entirely different crowds. I think the crowd that came to uh, uh, Pilate's palace on that uh, that morning was a crowd that was either there to petition Pilate for the release of Barnabas, or it was a crowd that the Jewish religious leaders had put together uh, that would be hostile to Jesus. I think the crowd, this is very, very early in the morning, and the crowd that welcomed Jesus by uh, throwing the palm branches before Him and their robes before Him, declaring Him to be the Messiah, they haven't even uh, woke up and had their first cup of coffee yet or whatever uh, they drank at that time. But now by the time uh, it comes to this place later in the morning and word gets out through the city that it's Jesus that's being tried, and there's a, something going on over there with Pilate, and the Jewish religious leaders are in an absolute frenzy. Now everybody comes out. And so now the crowd sympathetic to Jesus comes on the scene, and uh, the women uh, were a part of that multitude, and they mourned, and they lamented Him. They're crying. They look at to look at him, again, is Isaiah 53, even before he gets to the cross, uh, uh, Isaiah declares that he would be unrecognizable for who he was. And, and this, as I've mentioned before, he, if, if you had seen Jesus teaching in the temple area the day before and then saw this man making his way to Calvary the next day, you would not know it was the same person. That's how badly he had been savaged by this, this point. And so here now uh, is the lamenting over what they see, how he's being treated. And Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. And then they, they will begin uh, to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. And Jesus was prophesying what would one day happen to Jerusalem uh, and uh, in particular, but all of Judea additionally in 70 A.D., when Rome finally rose up and put down a rebellion of the Jews and the onslaught of of the Roman legions against Jerusalem. uh, Josephus says over a million Jews died in the city of Jerusalem alone. Now, we read about a car bombing or a missile hitting and 20 people are dead. And that's a tragedy. That's an awful casualty. 
Imagine one million people dead in one city to put down the rebellion of the Jews against Rome. Just an absolute horror to see. And Jesus declared that in this culture that esteemed bearing children and having children and not having children a curse, he said, on that day the women that do not have children will be thankful they don't have children because of the monstrosity of of events that will occur and that people will cry out for anything to kill them uh, 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 before they fall prey to the Romans. And then Jesus said four, and here's the reason, because that's a reason word. For if they do these things uh, in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? In other words, if the religious leaders that you follow will do this to perfect innocence, then what in the world are these leaders going to lead you into in the future? And of course, the Romans would uh, look at the Jews and they would look at it as, as being uh, done in the drive, that, they, uh, that in their spiritual condition, separate, not having trusted in Christ as, as the, the Savior, the rebellion against uh, Rome, they would come in and they would slaughter. And that, that's why, it, you know, so often they'll say today that I'm not that concerned about a president's character or a pastor's character or whatever leader's character. All I care is that they make the right decisions. But that, it, it, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be forced to choose related to that. And if you have a leader, as, as they are here, a leader, any leaders that would do that to Christ are going to lead you to doom. There's something wrong with that kind of a leader. And they would end up leading them in a terrible, terrible disaster. And there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And as Jesus was crucified between these two men that were guilty of a capital crime. I'm going to stop there because we head into the actual crucifixion itself in verse 33, and I don't want to break it up before we do go into it. So if the worship team would come forward and lead us in a little bit more worship before we close in prayer tonight and give us some time to just think about our Savior. When you read about Him in always in the Scriptures, always in the Scriptures, the Gospels, but in the intensity of this scene, and you, you see His majesty so perfectly and wonderfully displayed. You see how he conducted himself. You see what questions he answered, what questions he didn't answer. The answers he gave and the answers that he didn't give. And I would contend, and I know that you agree with me, as you read this account of him and the intensity of this situation, it cannot be improved upon. You look at His majesty in this situation and you just think, that is my Savior. 
who conducted himself in that way on that day. When you read the Gospel accounts as we're looking at here tonight, and especially related to this part of Jesus' life, is there anything that you could add to it or take it away that would make it better than it already is? You just can't do it. It's perfection. If He had said more, it would be to mar it. If He said less, it would be to mar it. And all to say, what a wonderful Savior that we have. And what a joy and a privilege it is to be able to associate with Him, one who would conduct Himself in this environment, not only in representing heaven related to all of this, but in being the Savior that anyone that becomes His disciple can say, I am proud to follow that, that man, that Son of God, uh, in how He handled himself from the beginning of his ministry to the end. And so let's worship him now. Father, we love you. We love you from this place. Jesus, we're so grateful for you. Grateful for your perfection in every way. How beautiful you are to us. What a perfect match for sinners such as us. And we thank you for all that you went through in order that we might be able to sing as we've sung tonight, to speak of you as my Savior. Thank you for being our Savior, Jesus. And we thank you tonight from hearts that could never begin to express our gratitude. We are so thankful. And we thank you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.